Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Pediatric practitioners should be cognizant about the metabolic effects of growth hormone. They should also guide patients in adherence to growth hormone therapy. Dr. Rohan Henry is here to speak with us today about his review titled, When They're Done Growing, Don't Forget, They May Still Need Growth Hormone. Dr. Henry is a pediatric endocrinologist and an attending physician at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's also a faculty member at The Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Henry. Can you please give us an overview of that review? Thanks for having me, Jessica. Most persons are aware of the growth-promoting properties of growth hormone, but there seems to be less awareness as the metabolic consequences which can happen in untreated growth hormone deficiency. In our podcast before, I had spoken about the fact that not everybody who gets growth hormone truly has growth hormone deficiency. However, there are a couple of persons who are diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency who have permanent growth hormone deficiency. So some of those children include those with congenital defects and those with acquired problems with growth hormone, for example, if they have received radiation therapies. The issue behind this is that because some of these persons with permanent growth hormone deficiency have metabolic problems that can have implications for them later on in life, even after they're finished growing, hence the title, when they're done growing, don't forget that they may definitely need growth hormone supplementation. How did this study come about or this review rather come about and what is the background? Okay, so I'm heavily involved in clinical practice. And one of the patients I came across a couple of years ago was that of a 17-year-old Caucasian female. So she had a number of hormonal insufficiencies, which included GNRH deficiency. So she had a problem with initiating puberty. So she was on hormonal medication for oral contraceptive pills. She also had TSH deficiency, which is secondary hypothyroidism, which is initiated from the pituitary gland. So she had a history of receiving radiation for her medulloblastoma. When she came to our clinic, she was really short. She was way below the growth chart. So she was about like minus 3.1 standard deviations below the growth chart. And I said to mom, um, had anybody spoken to you about the fact that she is likely to be growth hormone deficient? She said, you know what? When she was being treated for her medulloblastoma, um, they had mentioned that, but it was kind of on the back burner because there were more serious issues apart from growth hormone deficiency to think about, such as, I mean, those things which would be kind of um, a life or death situation. So I took it there and then that she's growth hormone deficient, but didn't do anything about it. And then, lo and behold, um, when she was about 20 years old, she was undergoing routine surveillance by the hematology oncology clinic, like most of these persons with um, cancers. And she was diagnosed as having an abnormal hemoglobin A1C. So her hemoglobin A1C was nine, which anything above 6.5 or two different occasions can be classified as having diabetes. So I was perplexed as to why she all of a sudden developed diabetes. So she had this profound insulin resistance. So she is about 50 kilos and she was requiring about 155 units of insulin, which is a boatload of insulin. So in terms of how we think about insulin doses, we usually think about it in terms of units per kilogram per day. So that was working out to be about three units per kilogram per day. And um, she was coming towards the end of puberty where you'd expect that she should 
shouldn't be that insulin resistant. I went to literature and realized that there is an association with growth hormone deficiency and performance insulin resistance, which is not what we would think of as endocrinologists. So as endocrinologists, we always tell our families, you know, we keep growth hormone, you actually can have glucose abnormalities, so you can develop symptoms of diabetes. But the converse is true in that growth hormone deficiency can actually cause profound insulin resistance like this person was presenting with. So the literature also documents, about in 1997, there was a young gentleman, 17 years old at the time, he had panhypopituitary. So he had a problem with producing thyroid hormone from the pituitary gland, um, which would be initiating it via TSH. He had a problem with producing ACTH, so he was um, secondary adrenal insufficiency. And he had a problem with growth hormone production. And his fatty liver was only treated effectively once he got growth hormone supplementation. By seeing that case, I kind of drew a parallel to say, you know what, my patient, this particular patient, sorry, who had the panhypophyte, he had a history of a fatty liver, which is a mild form of insulin resistance. So my patient with the severe diabetes had a severe form of insulin resistance because she required so much insulin. So my thought was that if his fatty liver was ameliorated by giving him growth hormone, my patient's diabetes could be ameliorated by giving her growth hormone. However, it wasn't totally ameliorated. I mean, she, she had a significant decrease in her insulin requirement. But the issue why it could not have been reversed was that she started having some irreversible changes in her liver. So she developed a fatty liver, but she had progressed to developing some nodules on her way to cirrhosis. So she was passing through what we call Seattle hepatitis, which is just those changes that part of fatty liver, which encompass like inflammatory changes. So she couldn't be reversed at that point in time. What are the issues impacting the diagnosis of pediatric growth, hormone deficiency, and therapy? We had touched up what this is in a previous podcast, but in a nutshell, I think we could classify the issues broadly as those of like assay problems, meaning how the test is done, the issue of how the reporting of the test is done, and the issue of just the test itself. When we look at the issues of assays, so years prior, growth hormone was quantified by a special method called radioimmunoassay, which is kind of an older method by which you look at hormones. More recently, it has been quantified by more specific methods. So when we say specific methods, you mean that you'll actually, the assay picks up the values better than it used to before, so you'll actually get lower readings. So that's what we call an, an ICMA method, immunochemino-dumetric assay method, which is more specific. So you expect that the values of the growth hormone that you're getting are going to be lower with these assays. But despite that, as we have discussed before, that we're using actually higher values now to make the diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency. The other issue is that not all levels of growth hormone are considered to be equal per se. So in my field of endocrinology, we treat a lot of patients with diabetes and we rely on the hemoglobin A1Cs, which are kind of portable in the sense that you can compare a hemoglobin A1C from one lab to the other lab. We have these point of care machines in most of our clinics. The years ago, there was a method to harmonize the hemoglobin A1C so you can compare it between different organizations. However, with the growth hormone assay, some countries use an international reference preparation, which is a standardized way of quantifying growth hormone, and some persons use a different reference population. So because there hasn't been any standardization, i.e. a lack of harmonization, it may be hard to compare a growth hormone level per se in Argentina versus that which is done in the U.S. So apart from those two issues which I just mentioned, there are also issues with the stimulation test itself. So the stimulation test is considered to be the gold standard these days in terms of making a diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. However, the real gold standard is no longer in use. So we used to use an insulin tolerance test, but as you can imagine, giving 
insulin can cause profound hypoglycemia. It also can cause seizures. So that has fallen out of favor with most practices these days. And we're using other agents, which are kind of surrogates for the insulin tolerance. And so some of the agents are like arginine, glucagon, clonidine, despite the fact that they are different agents, which actually possibly may stimulate growth hormone production to varying degrees. We use one value as being the cutoff for normal, which that value now is about 10 nanograms per ml. So these agents most likely have different just stimulations, but we're using one value still. The other issue is that body mass index actually can affect growth hormone levels. So if you look at studies involving persons who have lost weight, if you stimulate them afterwards, their growth hormone levels have actually increased. So despite the fact that we know that body mass index can affect growth hormone levels, we actually don't adjust for it in clinical practice. The next concept is that of what we call steroid priming. If you look at persons who are late bloomers, who have what we call constitutional delay of growth, if you stimulate them, they can actually fail their growth hormone symptoms if you don't give them a certain dose of sex steroids before the stimulation test. Under normal physiologic circumstances, we have kids who have growth hormone on board, but at the time of puberty, there's kind of an augmentation of this growth hormone response, and they, that's how you get your growth spurt. If you were to stimulate a person who's a late bloomer, you could be fooled into thinking that they have growth hormone deficiency because they have failed the stimulation test. But it was a case where that person doesn't have enough sex steroids on board. So the recommendation of the Pediatric Endocrine Society since about 2016 is that sex steroid priming should be done in these patients who have some constitutional delay. The other issue which affects the growth hormone stimulation test is a lack of reproducibility. So if you do a test today, you may actually get a different value tomorrow if you do the test. So uh, there are lots of different factors which affect the growth hormone stimulation test. What are the metabolic implications of deficiency? I want to preface this question by um, just giving you a kind of a background. So recombinant human growth hormone was approved in 1985 by the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States for children. In about 1987, it was approved for the treatment of adults who had congenital defects or acquired issues with growth hormone production. And even prior to that time, it was theorized that there was a separate growth hormone deficient state, which was characterized by abnormalities in muscle mass, decreased psychosocial well-being, but there wasn't the wherewithal to do any studies because there was a limited supply of growth hormone. One of the earliest evidence says to the fact that growth hormone can have metabolic effects was when you look at the population of adult males with panhypopituitarism, those who were supplemented with other hormones apart from growth hormone, together with growth hormone, they actually had a better outcome as compared to those who were supplemented without receiving growth hormone. So the fact that if you were supplementing without growth hormone, you had a decreased life expectancy would make one theorize that there were some metabolic aspects of growth hormones. When you look about the metabolic aspects, there are problems in terms of lipid abnormalities, problems in terms of glucose abnormalities. One of the issues with lipid abnormalities is that in men with hypopituitarism, they can develop non-alcoholic steatohepatitis so, or fatty liver. The other issue with the metabolic aspects of growth hormone is that persons who develop growth hormone in terms of childhood onset are different from those who develop growth hormone in adulthood or later on in life. There is evidence to show that growth hormone actually may affect cardiac functioning. So things like your the cardiac myocytes, growth hormone may increase cardiac myocyte activity by modulating the cardiac function. The other issue is that growth hormone can affect bone mineral density positively. But I want to say, even though there are these effects um, which have been seen in literature, there are sometimes is kind of a controversy as to whether or not 
these defects are always seen because there's kind of a difference in terms of how the studies have been done. I don't think at this point we can actually say everybody who is hormone deficient should get it. It's a case where you have to vet each person to see if that person will benefit from giving hormone. One thing I kind of didn't mention was that in the adult population, we talk about quality of life. So growth hormone has been shown to improve the quality of life. So persons in terms of like energy level, persons in terms of sexual functioning, just wanting to have a zest for life, growth hormone actually has been shown to improve some of those parameters. And there are different validated quality of life questionnaires, which you can actually use to see that the person is improving after they've received growth hormone over time. What would you say are the overall take-home messages from your review? The take-home message is really that we should recognize that there is a role for growth hormone supplementation even after growth is finished. And it's important that patients be transitioned appropriately to receiving growth hormone supplementation even after growth is finished. So when I talk about transitioning, transitioning is a whole body in literature which encompasses change of care from pediatric to the adult population. And that's actually a very crucial time when many persons are lost by the wayside in terms of receiving care, especially with growth hormone. Growth hormone is, for the most part, was given by a shot per day, which um, we'll come to that later on, possibly in the podcast. There was injection fatigue, meaning that persons who were receiving growth hormone every day, they don't want to get growth hormone for a lifetime, even if they need growth hormone. So that has caused a lot of persons to come off their growth hormone. But I think the clinicians should be aware that, you know what, they need to stress the importance of compliance. The take-home message is that we should appropriately transition and to appropriately stress compliance with this medication. How can this review impact clinical practice? So I think in terms of its impact on clinical practice, it's just to emphasize that it's important that a subset of patients, they're not just taking this medication just to grow, but they're also taking it for metabolic functions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Dr. Henry? I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for being on the podcast. All right. So this is a, a, a key question. The issue, it's very timely in the sense that in the past two or three months, the FDA has actually improved a long-acting growth hormone preparation for use in the pediatric population. It normally, traditionally, growth hormone was given by a shot per day. However, there's a long-acting growth hormone that you can give one shot per week. And uh, that is only approved for the pediatric population. Now, if we're transitioning somebody to adult growth hormone, they still will have to get growth hormone as a shot per day. So that isn't approved for adult population. Many persons may be wondering if they could use it, but it isn't yet approved by the FDN. There actually studies going on now to see if it could be approved for the adult population. So I think this is a very timely topic. We'll keep an eye on that for sure. Thank you again for your time. Thanks to Jessica for having me.